You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Um, we are in Acts chapter 20, and I am very grateful to be here with you this morning to be looking and continuing in, in the book of Acts, written about the Acts of the Apostles. I'm pumped about this. This is just trying to get in my groove, and you know what? We're not going to let that happen, all right? Uh, I'm not going to think about other things. We are continuing in uh, the Acts of the Apostles and moving into a chapter where Paul is, um, is really in a, a large travel narrative, if you will. We're not going to go all through the nuts and bolts there, but we will get to the, to the story in which you heard Alyssa just read where Paul addresses the elders at Ephesus. And um, before we start in that, as you're turning to Acts chapter 20 to follow along with us, uh, I'm going to pray for our time. Uh, if you would pray with me. Father, we're thankful this morning that you promised to be with your people. We're grateful, God, as we try to navigate this world that we can have confidence that your spirit is with us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be very evident this morning. That as we open up your word and hear from you, that it would be clear that you are speaking to our hearts to shape us, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Grant us that grace this morning. Demonstrate your power through your word. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 20 as I've mentioned, and really this captures the basis for this story. I want to lay a little little groundwork, a little foundation. The basis for, um, for what's happening here starts back in Acts chapter 19 in verse 21, where we read about the fact that Paul was um, resolving by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jerusalem. And after being there, he, he said, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. The, the interconnections of this narrative and this story are seen throughout even the letters where he writes a letter to Rome and says that he wants to come to see them. So, so he is talking about this. He's made his way and decision to do this. And on the way, the, the beginning of chapter 20 talks about the cities and places he stops, which is the way with Paul to confirm, to affirm, to edify, to encourage, to build up the churches that he's had a part of helping start and plant. And so he's going back to those same cities, and he actually goes to a point where he stops and he uh, preaches in a place called Troas. And when you see the, the narrative of a man named Eutychus, who Paul preaches for so long that Eutychus falls asleep and falls out of a window and dies. That puts a, that puts a lot of perspective on this morning, right? Okay, for all you guys <laughs> concerned, if we get approaching an hour in any given sermon, he goes all night and Eutychus dies. I was tempted, I actually saw this. I started to frame out a sermon about the dangers of falling asleep in church, but I really didn't know where to go with that, so we're not going to do that this morning. But uh, but he does, as um, as normal, confirming the power of Paul's message by raising Eutychus back from the dead. And so it goes on throughout the passage of chapter 20 to where Paul goes to a place called Miletus, which is not Ephesus, and he asks for the elders in Ephesus to be sent to him, to be brought to him, okay? Now, there's a reason for this. 
Paul is actually on a pretty tight timeline. He's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So he's got a target date. He's trying to get there before the big festival and all the Jews will be coming back. If you read Acts 2, that's where the big boom and 3,000 souls come to Christ when Peter preaches. I'm sure this is probably in the back of Paul's mind that he wants to get there for the festival and he's got a big captive audience. So, so he's looking forward to getting back for Pentecost. But Ephesus is a place he wants to stop to encourage the elders It's also a place that he spent the majority, a large portion of his time compared to other churches. He was there for three years. He's got a lot of friends there. He's got a lot of enemies there, I'm sure. So as you can imagine, if you go back to your hometown and try to stop in real quick, he's probably figuring it's not going to go that way. So instead of doing that, he goes to a nearby town, Miletus. So we don't have any context for him starting any ministry there. So probably he's a little more anonymous. And he gets the elders of Ephesus to come to him. All right, so that sets the stage. He's earnest. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He also has been receiving from the Spirit is testifying to Paul and through others that it's probably not going to go well for him in Jerusalem. So he doesn't know how that's going to end up. He even states the fact that his life might be at risk. And even if his life, life isn't at risk in Jerusalem, he plans on going from there onto Rome. Now, why do I tell you all this? This is like a final farewell address. This is him talking to a group of pastors that he has helped establish and encourage and affirm and build up and invest in. And he's given them one last talk. He's saying, brothers, this is what's important. And that has a lot of weight for us. Because if Paul the Apostle has one last message he wants to give to a church. Sure, he could write letters later, but there's nothing like face-to-face. If he comes with one last message of encouragement for these brothers to endure in ministry, we should look at what he has to say. Mainly because we also can be edified by it. We may not all be pastors here. For me, there's a, a certain special word here of encouragement that I'm being reminded of. But for all of us as believers, we've always encouraged the fact that deacons and elders are not some kind of a super Christian that is altogether different than anyone else sitting in our congregation today or any other church around the world. That's not supposed to be the case. We don't exclusively hold the rights to ministry. In fact, it says the elders are to be preparing the people for the work of ministry. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we do well to hear what Paul encourages these Ephesian elders in. The way he encourages them to endure in ministry because likewise we can endure in our mission. We talk about that. This is the mission of Acts 29, not Acts 29, wow, that just, that, that's a whole organization. Of Acts, <laughs> the mission of Acts uh, is, is our mission continuing with us. It's not a story that ends. It's the basis of where the name Acts 29 came from. There's no 29th chapter. They were trying to suggest that, that the mission goes on, and it does. So in this case, we want to see, I want to, point to and discuss what I see as three encouragements that Paul gives to the um, elders at Ephesus. Three of them. And the first one starts here in verse 17. Read with me. 
Now from my late Letus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul is speaking here to obviously the three years he spent with, with them, and he's pointing to himself as an example. This is not him directly telling them, hey, you need to make sure you do this, but rather to lift himself up. And what he's pointing to is his faithfulness. He's pointing to his faithfulness, and he's encouraging them through his actions and his life that he's pointing to for them to remain faithful. This is like other places where he asks and encourages people's in, uh, churches and letters to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Look at what I did, guys. Remember how I served the whole time, serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and during the trials, during those times of persecution. But he does encourage them to remain faithful, actually in what are very two explicit ways. And look at verse 20. You know that I did not hesitate to proclaim anything to you that was profitable and to teach you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks, what about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus? So the first thing he encouraged the men was to remain faithful to the message, to the message. He says, I didn't hesitate to reclaim anything to you that was profitable. And what was profitable? The message about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. This is the same message that Jesus came with himself. Mark chapter one, verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the encouragement for all people. Repent and believe the good news. So what does it mean to repent and believe the good news? Why is that so important? Brothers and sisters, the message is fundamental to our faith. It is the foundation of our faith. It is central. When we say things like gospel-centered, it's not just a catchphrase that sounds cool on a t-shirt or on a website, if you, if you so do want to put it there. It's not a, a simple thing that we want to play, pay lip service to, but rather embody that the message of the gospel to repent, turn from everything else that might hold our confidence in our faith and place it in the only one who deserves it. The only one who is valuable and worthy of our worship. Paul is coming to all these people that are scattered, as we talked about, who have been worshiping all forms of idols in Athens. They've got idols all over the city to the point that says, you guys are super religious and you even have an idol over here that says, to the one we might not know about, let me tell you about him. And so we are like Paul carrying that same message of repentance. Turn from all the other things you're putting your trust in. Idols aren't just things that are made from stone and wood or gold and set on a pedestal. They're anything that owns our hearts. They're anything that we trust in above the Father. That is inevitably what God was trying to teach Israel all through the Old Testament, to stop trusting in other things and to start trusting in him. From the point that he took him into the wilderness, I'll feed you, I'll take care of you, I'm here for you. I know it's rough, it's hot out here, it's sandy. I don't like that stuff in the beach either. Anybody that's like, you go to the beach and you got sand on everything. Can you imagine being in the desert for that long? There's sand everywhere. I'm like freaking out. <laughs> Just saying. It's uncomfortable. He had him in really uncomfortable situations. What a picture for life in general. Constant discomfort from time to time. But do you trust the Father? 
And so the message he has is not only to repent and turn towards God and trust him, but specifically to place your faith in the Lord Jesus. Because God doesn't leave it up to chance. He doesn't just simply say, okay, trust me, I'm out here. He rather enters into humanity. That God in the flesh, Jesus, Jesus tells us, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you know him, you know the Father. He says, I and the Father am one. We see the person of who God is in the body of Jesus Christ and in the words that he spoke and the ministry that he, that he upheld. So he gave his only son, John three sixteen, a very core verse that you may be familiar with if you haven't looked it up because you saw it like at the end zone of a football game. Do they do that anymore? I don't know. But basically you see John three sixteen. you should be familiar with this because it says that God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's not only that we must trust in God, but that we trust truly placing our faith in Jesus Christ, his son. That's the message he brings. Anything else is watering down the gospel. And can we talk about how tempting that is? Like I understand that gospel conversations just... It's like having sand everywhere at the beach. It's uncomfortable. It's worse than that sometimes. People can get combative. Like bringing up these things in different scenarios. If you're like me, like I get super, I might seem like I like to talk to people. (laughs) But all of a sudden I got nothing to say. Or it's really weird about it, you know. Like a Jesus juke. I just, how do I get there? But it's important for us to hold fast to the message because really honestly, the scripture and Jesus himself uses imagery of farming and planting. It's an agrarian lifestyle. And Paul talks about this too. Because as we remain faithful to the message, Paul says that some of us sow seeds, some of us water, some of us harvest, but we're all in the ministry and the mission together. So it might not seem like the things you say that are faithful to this message really make a dent at the time. But inevitably, as we trust in the one message, as we remain faithful to it, God is faithful in his spirit to do the work. So we don't have to change things and water it down. We don't have to say, God has a great plan for your life. And and one day he's going to make it come to fruition. We can rather say, turn and repent from these other things. He has a great plan for your life, but it's all in him and in Jesus not in whatever else you try to go after. So we need to remain faithful to the message. We need to live it out daily in our life and we need to trust God with the increase. The second thing that he encourages them to remain faithful to is the mission itself. Verse 22 starts this way. And now I'm on the way to Jerusalem, compelled by the spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Remember we said, he knows that this is not probably going to go well. That's what it seems to be. But he is compelled and says, I need to go to Jerusalem because that's where God is directing me to go. So what's his response in verse 24? I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. That's his mission. Honestly, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that's our mission. There was no 
distinction that Jesus made. Go into all the world and make disciples unless you're not feeling like it or having a bad day or you're in a season. But rather, he encourages us, as Paul encourages us, to stay the course. And, and, and friends, that looks different for every one of us. It really does. You're, not everyone is called particularly to speak publicly. Not everyone is called necessarily to go overseas. Though as Aaron has pr- prayed this morning, we desire to send. Not every one of you is set to lead in some way and capacity in a ministry at church, but every one of you is placed uniquely, as Paul reminded us in Acts 17, that God guides your steps and places you in places with people and families that are uniquely placed for you to show them Christ, that he's not very far from any one of them. You have a mission field that's right for you. It might be with your families. It might be at the places you work or just down the street in the neighborhood that you live at the pool on a Saturday. And I know just as it's tempting for us to water down the message, it's also easy for us to get caught up into the whirlwind of the life that we lead. It really is. I mean, it's like a badge of honor. You hit adulthood. How's it going? I'm busy. It's an easy answer. Busy. I've been trying to figure out how I can change that so that's not my default answer and actually leave margin to be faithful to the mission. That I'm not in such a rush that when I see someone in front of me that has a need or maybe could use encouragement or could be pointed to Jesus in a very special way that I'm like, ah, I'd love to do that, but I have an appointment in two minutes. And sometimes that happens. But we need to, as best we can, consider our life and how we might remain faithful as Paul is to consider his life of no value, but rather to instead prioritize the mission that God has placed in front of him. So what are some obstacles to our own faithfulness as we follow after Paul? What can hinder us from being faithful to the message and to the mission? Well, three things actually came to mind. Um, First of them is that we might not really view this message as profitable as Paul does. That's a question to ask. The message of the gospel is not something just for some future time, but rather it changes our life today. And if you don't find any profit in the gospel in your life today, how, how easy is that for you to go share to other, other people? Listen, I don't know about you, but when I find something that I find profitable or exciting, most people tell me to stop talking about it. Okay. I'll give him this really simple example and I want to kick on and then Aaron's going to be like, ah, he's talking about it again. In the news and artificial intelligence is a thing that's going through, right? It's just like flying through this year, right? It's been around for a minute. I just can't, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by this. Oh, there's all kinds of things we can get into talking about that and I won't. But I'm fascinated by this. So every time I say someone, they're doing something, Aaron's like, hey, I'm working on this email. So you know what I use for that? <laughs> <laughs> It's helpful ways that it can help you, but I'm fascinated because I think it's profitable. It's helpful. In the same way, when we see Paul say he was not hesitating to proclaim anything to you that was profitable. If you ask people about a good place to go eat this weekend, they're going to mention all the places they thought were good because they got in the back of their head. That was delicious. That was wonderful. The Psalm reminds us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And if the message is not good to you, 
I don't expect you to tell anybody about it. Otherwise it's forced. Otherwise you're trying to convert somebody. You're trying to sell somebody on something that you don't really believe and you're just a hypocritical salesman. I think the second thing that can be an obstacle to our faithfulness is fear of man. Fear of being rejected, fear of being ridiculed, fear of being persecuted for standing on the truth of the gospel. It's a very real thing. My encouragement to you would be what time I am afraid, I will trust in him. I will not fear what man can do to me. The things that we face in this life are only temporal. And you can pray and pray and pray if you really believe this message is profitable, if you believe you have a command to the mission that fear of man won't stand in the way. And then finally, the third thing I think that can be an obstacle is sin in our own lives. That if we're unrepentant, if we aren't truly living out what we say is a valuable message of repenting from what we're, we're trusting in and turning to the Father, that can hinder every matter of mission. You're distracted. You're hindered in your boldness. Your passion for the gospel is waning. I understand that. And why encouragement to you is first and foremost, look at our own lives. If you have sin that's hindering you from the mission and the message of being faithful as Paul, then let's deal with that. Let's bring that out into the light. It's like a really bad mold that's just sitting in the dark and it's festering. Even more than that, there's something about wound care that I think connects so tightly with this kind of example that when, when a in, in hospitals, when someone has a very severe wound, if they just leave it covered up and the infection's inside, guess what it does? It doesn't heal. Actually, it can just grow and infect and kill the person. But this really nasty process of tearing it open and cleaning it, that can be painful. You know what it leads to? Health and life. And so in the same way, when we have sin on our own lives, we need to bring it to light it might be uncomfortable, it might be painful, but it helps us. It gives and tunes our hearts as we trust our sin to the Father for us to be on mission and faithful to the message. So to remain faithful to the message and to the mission, Paul turns now in the next passage to encourage the Ephesus elders to be vigilant. Look at verse 25. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Paul starts this section by saying that I am innocent of you. I have given you everything I have. So now that you have it all, what does he tell them to do? Be vigilant with your own heart. Be on guard for yourselves is what he says in verse 28. The heart is deceptive. The heart is, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, it's more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? We are, we are sometimes our best little lawyers, are we not? Human beings can justify anything. And if we don't stand on guard against our own heart, we can lead ourselves into all forms of destruction. That's why this rings kind of in parallel with what Paul tells his co-laborer Timothy later in his letter to him. He tells him to pay close attention to your life and your teaching and persevere in these things. To keep an eye on that. 
And you know, it's easy. Actually, it's natural for us as human beings to want to self-justify. I mean, we joke about having a little lawyer on our shoulder, but really we do. We really, come on, you, we always justify. The salespeople know that. They get you emotional about a product, and then they know that you're going to try to rationalize buying it. You're going to figure it out. Well, this makes some economic sense, doesn't it? I need a new boat. <laughs> Listen to this story. Maybe you're familiar with it. It was shocking news. 39 people were found dead at a luxury estate in Rancho Santa Fe, California. Participants in a mass suicide. All were members of an obscure cult called Heaven's Gate. Each body was laid out neatly, feet clad in brand new black Nikes, face covered with a purple shroud. The cult members died willingly and peacefully, leaving behind videotapes describing their re- leaving behind videotapes describing their reason for suicide. They believed that the hail bop comet, a recently discovered comet streaking across the night skies, was their ticket to a new life in paradise. They were convinced that in hail bops wake was a gigantic spaceship whose mission was to carry them off to a new incarnation. To be picked up by the spaceship, they first needed to rid themselves of their current containers, their bodies. That is, they needed to lead their own bodies by ending their lives. Alas, no spaceship ever came. Their thinking might strike you as strange, irrational, or stupid. But generally speaking, the members of Heaven's Gate cult were none of those things. Neighbors who knew them considered them pleasant, smart, and reasonable. What is the process by which intelligent, sane people can succumb to the much, such fantastic thinking and self-destructive behavior? It is simply an extreme example of a normal human tendency, the need to justify our actions and commitments. Keep an eye on your heart. Be aware of what you desire to justify. This is an extreme example, but how do people get there? Pray, read scripture, seek counsel from other believers, and keep a watch on your own heart. Second, he says for them to be vigilant against attacks from the outside. Verse 29, I know that my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Not sparing the flock. Paul is warning them to say that there are people readily waiting to come into the church and to sow seeds of disunion, to to harm and carry away sheep. Are you guys familiar with sheep and wolves? Like, there's like no even, they battle, they wolves eat. You know, are we explaining? We got that? I get nuts. No. Wolves get into a flock of sheep, they got like a feast. And Paul is saying that like wolves... False teachers are looking for opportunities to come in and attack from the outside. Not even just false teachers that are teaching about the church itself, but false teachers on the outside who have any number of things they're teaching you about. That are sowing seeds of doubt within what we know to be true in the message of the gospel. A shepherd guards his sheep from wolves and he's encouraging them like shepherds to guard their faith in the church from these destructive outside influences. And, and even today it might seem that there are influences on steroids i don't encourage it but if you're on social media of any kind it's not like it's a totally downside thing but do you know how algorithms work do you know this see i'm fascinated with ai it's i mean literally made to feed you what you want you might take psychology class like it's 
It's groupthink on steroids. Why do we have such extreme belief systems? Because they are reiter- because the beliefs are reiterated over and over again in such a way that people believe actually that everyone else is crazy like them <coughs> or crazy like me. And so you see what you want. Why? Because the goal is for you to stay on the platform. So it's going to show you what you want to see. So why is it that everyone doesn't understand that there was a, a pizza shop that was killing kids and feeding to whatever? Did you hear about this? This was actually a thing. Like, like people went outside and tried to burn down and riot because they thought that certain political candidates were involved with some weird like kid killing thing at a pizza shop. Literally. I'm going off weird tangents today. I'm sorry. The power's out. I'm all thrown off. It wasn't in my notes. Micah, I told you to keep me on my notes. That was not, okay. But you get what I'm saying. You can believe weird things. You believe really weird things. Be on guard against those things on the outside. For you, be on guard in your heart. Be, a, be vigilant against attacks from the outside. The third thing he says is, be on guard against deception within the church. Look at verse 30. Men will rise up even from where? Your own numbers and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Be on alert, remembering that night and day for years, I never stopped warning each one of you. He is saying, remember, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, be on guard. Don't be surprised when you're in your small groups, when you're walking around with people who are believers and they say things that doesn't seem quite right. Follow that thought and be on guard. Doesn't mean you're right, but let's be vigilant is what Paul says. Be vigilant, don't assume with others, be like the Bereans who hear even Paul speak and they search the scriptures to see if it's true. The God has given each one of us the Holy Spirit, but it's in combat with our flesh that we would justify ourselves, that we would believe things we want to believe, or that we would be led astray. Listen to the Holy Spirit, seek counsel from other brothers and sisters. Pray, 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 and trust that God will lead you into truth. Be vigilant, though, and don't just go with the winds. Because the winds will blow your sail ship right into the shore and make a wreck of your life. The third thing, he encourages them. Not only does he say to be faithful and remain faithful, he encourages them to be vigilant, but to do it all living by grace. Live by grace. Where do I see that? Verse 32. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Paul is ready to move on to Rome. And he is sitting here with these brothers that he loves so dearly. And what is he committing them to? He's not there to guard them anymore. He's not there to encourage them anymore directly. He is entrusting them what? He's committing them to God and to the word of his grace. He is trusting them to the fact that God's grace is sufficient for them. And the thing we have to recognize about God's grace is that God's grace is our foundation. It's the foundation for the way we live our life. In verse 32, again, he says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. What is sufficient? God's grace is sufficient to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. And this also echoes what Paul talks about. What is his grace? What does his grace do? Where is God's grace demonstrated? Look at verse 28. He's telling them to shepherd the church of God. What is the church of God? That which he purchased with his own blood. You want to see the grace of God on display? Look at Jesus. God's rightful wrath towards sin. And we should agree, rightful wrath. Come on. 
Are you telling me we look at the world around us and the brokenness here and not desire and just want justice? God is just, but he is also gracious and merciful. And so all of us who are undeserving of mercy, instead God pours out and purchases with Christ's own blood, our right of forgiveness. That's our foundation. In God's grace, it's by his grace that we are saved and it's by his grace that we should live. Only by putting our faith in him, only by putting our faith in that grace can we have any hope in this world. And so we have to recognize that fundamentally, the grace, immeasurable grace, friends, immeasurable grace. That's what Paul, Paul wrote that letter to Ephesians. He said the same thing in chapter two. He says to them, you are wretched. Remember, you are children of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love. What did he do? He raised us up with Christ. He gave us his son. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He per- this is what they, he's encouraging the Ephesus church. He purchased you with his blood. The greatest thing he could give, he offers it to us, the one who is least deserving. I, look, I have a hard time like giving a lot of things. I really do. I'm like a pack rat. Don't look in the drawers in my, in my, my workshop. But God held nothing back. He gave it all. And so we live on the foundation of his grace. And the thing, second thing he encourages them is this, to live by grace in our own life. Because if we see God's grace as our foundation, we should recognize the effect it has on us. It's able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. There's a couple views of God's grace. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace and costly grace, and I think those are helpful distinctions. The cheap grace view is one that views God's grace and causes us to be permissive toward our sin, meaning that, oh, God forgives everything? That's cool. As Paul says, let's go sin so that grace can abound. That's a view that really is primarily concerned with the perceived benefits that God offers in his grace. Oh, I get heaven, I get living forever, I get eternal life, I get away from wrath. I'm happy with all those things. It's, it's like Paul mentions, looking at the created things, the, the gifts that are given rather than the giver of the gift. And there's another view of God's grace that's sanctifying, and that's what Paul's talking about. One that's transformative, one that's life-changing. The one that sees what we... Well, we said that God who offers us everything and owes us nothing. His grace that overflows to us, we are so unworthy of and should be compelled to go out into the world and show that same grace to others. The grace is so rich and overflowing that a God who loves us, why would I want to do things that grieves his heart? Why would I willingly and knowingly want to go into this world and say, thanks for the grace, God. I'll be back when I'm done with what I want to do. 
No, Paul is encouraging us to, in our own life, both be sanctified by God's grace, but also to show ourselves grace. I I think there's two ends of this spectrum, friends. There's some of us that might be permissive and the other ones who will never forgive ourselves even though God has forgiven us. I'm not the only one who has a hard time with that sometimes, am I? No, no, no. That how could God really forgive the things I've done? There's no way. He knows everything. If my family knew the things I did, there's no way they'd forgive me. So how could God forgive me? If that hasn't run through your mind, you don't have a really healthy view of the things you've done in your life, apparently. We've all sinned before God. Well, here's my encouragement to you. If God is willing to give his son for your sin, he didn't do it unknowing what you would do in the future. Like like he's fully aware. He said, here's forgiveness in Christ. Whoa, hold on, Aaron. Didn't think that was coming. I'm using him as an example. I don't want to call anybody else out. (laughs) No. My favorite, uh, one of the favorite quotes I really am encouraged by is that there's more grace and mercy in Christ than sin in us. So while some of us may abuse the grace of God, others struggle to accept the grace of God. He has forgiven you and you can walk in that freedom. So we should live by the grace in our own life. And second, thirdly, we should show that same grace toward others. Look how Paul changes his tune here. He shifts almost, it seems jarringly, to a conversation about giving in silver and gold. Verse 33, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I work with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you what is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's quotation of Jesus here is really a a perfect sentiment to this message of this final passage. What's interesting is we actually don't have another quote of Jesus saying this in the Gospels. But it seems to be a familiar, it seems to be a familiar phrase to the disciples. Just like our Lord said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. A life lived by grace is a life marked by giving. Not only material things, and yes, we do. We give of ourselves like the disciples in the beginning of Acts 2, where they all came together and had things in common so that no one had need. But we give ourselves emotionally. We give of ourselves and our time. We give of ourselves toward others. We give in ourselves in our patience, in our humility. Paul has also encouraged the Philippians in his letter to them to humble ourselves and to think of others more highly. And the sentiment Paul has here is that I've shown you what is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this. That he sees those who have need and he doesn't take advantage of them and trample them. That is, if you're not aware, completely counterculture in the time that he's writing this, that he's speaking this. If you don't have power, you have nothing in Roman society. It's all about position and power. And if you have power, you can do anything. 
we we really underappreciate how the message of the gospel turned the world upside down. Because we live in a world that still desire, they still deny Christ, yet live by this. That they see the weak and the oppressed and they want to serve them. These are values that are found clearly in scripture, and yet they give no account to the one who has taught us and shown us that way, that has demonstrated that in his very body by giving himself on the cross. Like a river that overflows in banks, God's grace in our lives should overflow and impact those around us. God of immeasurable grace has poured it out into our lives, and that should change yours the way outside people see you because it is more blessed to give than to receive. So brothers and sisters, my encouragement is the same that Paul gives. Remain faithful to the message and the mission. Be vigilant over your own heart. Be vigilant against outside influences and be vigilant from people within our own church. Let's be wise together. And finally, live by grace. Live by grace, founded on the foundation of God's grace towards us, that we live by grace within ourselves, but also we show that kind of grace to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, we're grateful that you have demonstrated such immeasurable grace to each one of us. Father, I pray that we be overwhelmed and amazed by that reality. God, that the truth of your grace would permeate our souls and would change us. God, guard our hearts. Guard us against the enemy's attacks. Guard us against the wisdom of this world. Guard us against the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. All those things that would draw us away from you and say that they were more valuable or offered more than knowing you. Father, strengthen us so that we remain faithful as disciples of Christ, that we carry the message to all who are around us to turn to God and trust in Christ. Keep us on the mission. Father, thank you for your love for your grace, for your mercy, for your kindness. Make us more like Jesus. And I ask all this in Christ's name.